Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. As winter descends upon us, season five of Style Stories aims to echo nature's cycle to stop, adapt and recover by highlighting stories of rebuilding, re-strengthening and reinvention after a period of struggle or turmoil. In a time of coldness, season five aims to warm your ears and hearts and help shed some light onto your style and your story. Due to the current Sydney lockdown, this episode continues to be partly recorded from my closet and will be the finale episode of season five. A few weeks back, I chatted with Katie McGrath, Chief People and Culture Officer with Seven West Media and author of her own true story, Deadly Earth. I read Katie's book before we met, and to be honest, it struck such a strong emotional chord with me that I just wanted to make a human connection with her more than I had a desire to establish her relationship to style. We do still touch on fashion and Katie's fearless style, but this is a story of a strong, passionate woman who's shown grace in her quest for truth, identity and legacy. As our country faces its own trials, Katie's story is a timely reminder of resilience and the power of the human spirit. I hope you're all well and have someone to connect with and can sit back, relax, and take some inspiration from listening to Katie's story. So, Katie, I've just um, finished reading your your book, Deadly Earth, and um, I I I don't I don't know how I'm going to compose myself through this interview, but. As I said to you um, in meeting you, anybody with a shred of humanity um, would find reading your book and the true story of your life, especially your childhood, incredibly moving, um, incredibly hard not to feel your sorrow and and the deep grief that you've had to experience. Uh, and whilst obviously that forms so much of who you are, I, for me today is, um, it's really important to celebrate the strength and tenacity of you and the amazing, gorgeous woman that yeah. stands before me um, having survived so much trauma. Um, so that's what I would like to get out of wow. today. Yeah. <laughs> what a positive way to start. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Uh, but... I really want to be careful that we tell your story in your words. Mm. Um, And so we're going to start off with your little red shoe that you've bought here today. Uh, Obviously, in reading the book, it becomes a very heady symbol. Um, But you, if we could start off by you telling me what that little shoe means for you and your childhood. Well, this little red shoe... um was my first walker. So it's also the only thing I have left from my life or from my mum. So my mum put this little red shoe on me when I was first learning to walk when she was still alive and she died when I was three and a half so there wasn't a lot of time. But I 
never knew that it existed until a few years ago when I decided to write the book Mm. and I was trying to make contact with people from my life because we had no contact with anyone really from our life as kids and I looked up an old neighbour who had whose daughter had been really good friends with me. And uh, anyway, I went to meet her and she pulled something out of a handbag and said, I've been, ho- I've been looking after this for 44 years. Your mum gave this to me because I had four daughters and she thought it might fit one of my little girls when you grew out of it. And it never fit because you were so little, mm-hmm. um, but I kept it all these years. And she pulled it out in this little glad bag, sandwich bag, and gave it to me and... I just couldn't believe it. Like it was unbelievable. It just it just brought back all these memories of sitting on a bed and mum tying my shoelaces up and just being so excited and happy. Um, and it was just unbelievable. 44 years mm. had passed and here was this little shoe and it's the only thing that I have that my mum had touched. Yeah. I didn't get anything from my parents because we were whisked away when we were so little. But so it, it's really got a very special meaning from, you know, my life did exist before all the trauma that's come since. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there was still something really special about it. In in holding on to that little shoe, were they, they memories that you had not known that you had already or did they did it bring back something that had you thought you'd lost in yeah, terms of it's a really, memory it's really hard to say because my memories um and if you know anything about trauma um i have a few memories um from when i was little and a lot of them fade with time and and pass mm. um but like a lot of people i have memories clearly from being two two and a half three which a lot of ch- people don't know but i had a, a real defining line in time because at four you know both my parents were dead yeah. so anything that relates to them being alive means i was a toddler you know a really young child yeah. so i do have though you know a few of those memories but trauma does an extraordinary thing to the human brain and you know my book talks a little bit about that mm. um so a lot of my memories have been erased a lot of them um you know have i've associated with because they were so traumatic but yeah little they're more flashes you know mm. flashes of a memory of my mum getting out of the shower and drying herself or you know my dad throwing me up into the air um, just little flashes of memory like that which are so precious when you don't have anything else yeah um for those who haven't read the book do you want to just give a brief sure. or your version of how how you lost your parents and what kind of happened to you. Yeah. So it's a pretty um, unbelievable story if it wasn't true. So my mum and dad were both really hard-working Australians. Dad was a builder, mum was a teacher. Mm. Um, They had a few businesses running and they finally kind of did well enough to buy their first waterfront house in Hunters Hill. Um, And uh, when we got there, we didn't know that it was the site of a previous... Um, radioactive waste dump. Um, It had been a factory processing uranium in the early 1900s before they knew that uranium processing was um, produced radioactive waste that was deadly. So the government had known about this in the 50s, really kept it secret and had redeveloped this land for residential use. So my parents unknowingly walked in 
into a death sentence, basically. Mm. They bought their, this house, they started renovating it, they started growing organic, organic mm. vegetables in the garden. My dad had a restaurant and served these organic vegetables. And anyway, after living there for quite a short time, my mum became very ill um, and they worked out it was leukaemia. There was no history, it's not a heritable cancer. Um, and so she became very ill very quickly, was in Sydney Hospital and um, dying effectively. Um, and then Dad very quickly became ill as well with stomach cancer, which they didn't work out until very late in the piece. Um, I was three and a half when my mum died and nine months later my dad died from, from stomach cancer. Um, they we believe knew that they were dying from a result of the radioactive waste, but they didn't tell us kids. Mm. Um, in fact, we don't know who knew what because there was no one to talk to after they died. Um, and as a result of them dying um, and it happening so quickly, I don't think they had great plans. The, my dad's dying wish without a proper will was that the kids would stay together. There were four of us. I was the youngest of four. And uh, so my dad um, made some kind of arrangement with a cousin of his um, who would take all the four children but would get my parents' estate. Mm. Um, there were no trust funds. There was nothing like that set up. And, you know, mum and dad were young but they were well-to-do at that time. Um, mum was 35 when she died. Dad was 39. So we went off um, to a foster family which were relatives. We just had, hadn't known them. Um, before and um, I think it's safe to say we all felt as if we'd walked into the house of horrors. Mm. So it was a very violent household. Um, my uncle, Ted as we called him, um, was married to a, um, a Hungarian immigrant um, who was actually a decent person, I think, and she was in terrible circumstances, married to someone who was very unpredictable and violent and he was six foot six tall. Right. Um, and it was just a very difficult home life to, to kind of adapt to. We were four grieving children. We had no idea what was happening to us. There was no such thing as counselling or grief counselling. We were told when we moved into this new household and they had three children of their own, but everything was strange. It was bizarre. It was cold. Um, we'd come from a really loving family and we'd had parents that just adored us and then they were just gone. No one told us what was going to happen or we were really confused, obviously. Yeah. And we went into this household. It was really violent um, and it was like nothing I can even begin to explain because unless you've been in a situation where you just fear for your life um, and safety all the time... We just learnt to survive and um, it was a really difficult um, environment. Um, we suffered physical, sexual abuse, um, never told anyone about it. Everything on the surface looked normal. I went to Loretto Curabilly, for God's sake. Mm. Um, I, um, I think, you know, there was something that education was considered to be really important and, you know, they had seven children attending private school. Yeah. Um, and so it was just a really difficult um, situation. And then I guess the, the second part of the book is, is really finding out. Um, in 2008, I read the, read the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald and on it it said, all these deaths in Nelson Parade, Hunters Hill, were as a result of um, 
radioactive waste exposure mm. and the government is now looking into you know what the impacts of that are and freedom of information meant that all this um, hidden government information was now public and I just dropped the newspaper and rang my brother and said didn't mum and dad die from um, cancers and didn't we live on this street and he said yes um, long story cut short right to the end a couple of months ago um, there was an announcement by mm -hmm. the government to say that they've finally committed to cleaning it up and they're going to move all this radioactive waste um, at you know a huge cost to taxpayers to the US yeah um, so they're going to ship it off to the US and um, hopefully clean it up for once and for all yeah it, there are no words <laughs> to kind of encompass the um, gravity of, mm. of your story. Um, but as I said, I, I, I want to celebrate you today um, and understand who you are. And, and, and so also the audience can learn from your strength and tenacity. Um, but I know that your memories of your mother will be fragmented um, and few. But... Uh, in your understanding of her, who she is, what what parts of her do you see in yourself? Yeah, it's such an interesting question because yeah, I really know nothing about my mum. I really, I recently um, met her best friend from university who mm. found me through reading the book. And uh, so I met her and I was like, please, you've got to tell me. I don't know anything about my mum. Yeah. And um, Iris, she was exceptionally bright, um, absolutely um, into fashion. Yeah. Absolutely into fashion, which I'd never heard or known anything about that before. So that was incredible. So Anne, this friend of hers, told me all these things. Um, she was she had this really sporty, groovy little car, yeah. um, which was unheard of in the time. Like women in the 1950s going to Sydney University on scholarship mm. and she had a little car and she was clever enough to find some parking permit so she was allowed to park on campus. Um, she was very organised, really kind of driven, a real go-getter. Um, she failed first year medicine, I think, because she came from a really strict Baptist family um, on the northern beaches who probably didn't think it was a good idea for women to be getting educated and certainly not becoming a doctor. Mm. Um, and so she came from this really strict family, but once she got to university, it was, you know, let your hair down and they partied hard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so she failed first year medicine. But uh, and the thing that I'm really missing is I know she was a real go-getter. I know she was driven. I think my mannerisms are probably quite similar. She was dark-haired mm. um, and fairer than me. I was more the colouring of my dad. But she, um, she must have been an extraordinary woman. Um, she kind of helped dad with his businesses. Um, she ended up being a teacher after dropping out of medicine, I suspect, because she was pregnant with my eldest brother. They had to run away to Alice Springs and, and have a child. But how am I like her? It's really hard to know. I, I It's always about hoping and dreaming and wishing that, um, you know, I have her strength. Mm. I mean, I think I've been tested, so I've probably had to develop it. She was only 35 when yeah. she died. Yeah. Like. I'm nearly 50 mm. and so it's really bizarre to think for a really long time I've been a lot older than she ever was. Yeah. Um, she was a mum of four. Um, I think she was a great mum. My brother tells me about just how she really was able to look at us kids and work out 
what would drive and motivate each of us. And so I've really tried to emulate that with my own two girls um, and really kind of connect with who they are individually. One of the things that you do talk about in terms of obviously the house that you lived in growing up was not something that afforded you a huge opportunity to explore your sense of self or your uh, celebrate your own identity. Um, but one of the things that was si- singular to you was just your sheer academic prowess. Um, do, do you hope, do you think that that's, that's the thing, one of the things that you, you got from your mum? I think and I did, yeah. Yeah. I think I did. I think... Um, Yeah, you're absolutely right in terms of identity and, you know, I talk a lot about that and just being a child, how much your sense of self and self-esteem is built through your mum and dad, just giving you feedback, you're really good at that, you're my little angel, whatever it is, you just don't know until it's taken away that that is how your identity is created. So I really did grow up having no idea who the hell I was. I didn't know, I just felt fear and I felt different and I felt unworthy, I felt like I didn't belong anywhere, I felt like a freak. Doing well at school was something that maybe came naturally but I still worked at it. I mean, it wasn't just like I never studied. I actually put my mind down and maybe that gave me a sense of safety, structure. I remember having timetables when I came home from school, you know. I'd be allowed to have afternoon tea for half an hour, but it was very structured. I was very neat. I was really organised. So, again, maybe like my mum. When in reading the book, when you do talk about school, you you do talk about um, this sense of it being a haven, like a place of that did feel safe for you, you'd walk through the doors and you could, I guess, take the shield off a little bit. Um, And you also talk about the very important, supportive, um, integral friendships that you developed at that time that uh, still stay with you today. School was obviously a really um, critical part of you getting some level of comfort and safety in your those formative years I think my friends yeah they really gave me a genuine sense of just caring about me for who I was Mm. um they knew obviously that I came from a difficult environment that was not like their own but they none of my friends knew anything about what was going on they, they didn't I, understand the level of abuse you no, were going through no they didn't know home. anything i just wanted to fit in yeah i just wanted to be like all the other kids and i looked like all the other kids yeah. that was the thing i think that was kind of my saving grace so people would gravitate towards me going she seems like a normal kid mm. and so i had friendships with all these really normal kids that had a normal mum and dad and normal families and it's actually where I learnt a lot about what normal was. And from these women, is that how you learnt what womanhood was? Like going through puberty, all those kind of really formative things. Did you have to figure that out yourself or did these families that you could find a normal connection to support you through that? No, I pretty much found womanhood on my own. I mean, I yeah. discovered everything on my own and I guess I'd talk to my friends and stuff about it but there was definitely no mother-daughter talks about this is what to expect. Right. Um, 
Yeah, and, you know, looking back on it all now and, you know, there's no point regretting anything, just it's made me able to cope. Without um, trivialising anything in your life, what did wearing the school uniform mean for you? If that was a place of belonging, a place where you could celebrate parts of yourself um, and, and your own single achievement... Was wearing a uniform um, a way of feeling protected? Was it a way of feeling the same? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I probably haven't reflected on it much. But, you know, maybe wearing a uniform did make me feel like I fit in and I belonged. Um, You know, I was pretty – I was a good girl Mm. at school on the whole until I got a bit older. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I would never get in trouble for not wearing the correct uniform, for argument's sake, you know. I would make sure I had my blazer on if you had to have it on. Um, So I was very respectful of rules on the whole, which is really funny because anyone who knows me now says you're so non-conformist you don't right. like following rules right um but yeah when I grew up with so much fear that I just had respect for for rules everywhere mm-hmm. and so the uniform was you know I think it was a sign of respect but yeah belonging and feeling like the others would have helped do you think that you've held on to any of that um in terms of uh um how you dress as an adult um or do you think because you broken away from the rules that now you want to break the rules in the way that you're supposed to dress yeah it's such an interesting question I I don't know I I don't I don't think deeply about it I mean I kind of just be and I have so much to to manage and think about that I love fashion um but I'm not a slave to it and it's probably not as big a deal in my life as it would be if I had more time and mm. um, and ability to kind of indulge it. But, you know, I live a hard, intense life. Yeah. And I always have and I probably always will. It's the price of being a single mother. Obviously you left school and then you, you really hit a hard patch when you started university. And I imagine, again, we, we've talked about, you know, your, your household being a place where you really weren't allowed to express yourself and then university is this place where there's so much freedom to explore and express yourself. Is that what undid you at that point? Was that absolutely? Yeah, yeah. I think, well, I'd survived. I'd I'd coped for so long, and I had all this adrenaline. And once I got through school, and got to university, yet yeah, this stuff was bubbling up. You know, there was grief, there was the abuse, there was this self-loathing, this was, there was this terror. Who was I? You know, I, I had and, – and university was very much, as you say, self-expression, but it was also having to perform. Like I was in, you know, tutorials and lectures where you'd have to stand up the front and give a presentation. That was like the most terrifying thing in the world that people would see – that I was a fraud, people would see that, you know, I didn't have any confidence, they would know that I was just this traumatised girl and it 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 really undid me. I hadn't processed anything. Yeah. I hadn't processed the fact that my brother had died in, in a motorbike accident. I hadn't processed any of the grief. I hadn't processed any of the trauma. I hadn't processed any of the abuse. Um, I don't even know how I was still alive at that point, actually. Mm. But it did. It just became completely overwhelming and I just needed to escape. In reading your book and reading your story, it 
sounds as if that was also the critical turning point for you to rebuild your life and to get it to a place of, of strength and um, happiness and joy. Yeah. Um, you got to leave that house uh, and start a life of your own. What were the building blocks there? Yeah, it was a really long process and unfortunately, you know, after 18 years of trauma, it's not easy to turn it around. That was the most important um, building block for change, um, getting out of that house and having just safety was really important to then actually face up to the reality of my life. And I started um, getting really good therapy and help um, even the concept of going to see someone meant I must have been important enough for that to matter. I mean, I had to pay for it all, of course, and all that kind of stuff. But that in itself started a process of healing and realising I, wa- I did matter. I was a human. I mattered. Mm. And getting help and addressing all the trauma and being honest about it and opening up and telling someone who wanted to listen. Um, but just getting help and working out that, I was actually a pretty good person, um, you know, and I really cared about others and that's why I ended up becoming a psychologist myself, which I did um, for a while. Uh, So, yeah, just it's been a step change. I mean, it's a journey, right? As you know, we're here in life and we keep evolving and we keep growing and I just think that empathy is... um, the most important trait and I think the more the field that I work in which is all around people yes um it's really rare yeah genuine empathy is really rare and it's something I have in spades um and it's really difficult to deploy when you have you know a job where you really need to be really ruthless but you know, um, yeah, I'm an evolving um, human like we all are. I want to go into um, the, the, that time where you got to move out with your girlfriends. Um, I want to understand how you were able to invite some of the frivolity um, and hedonism that were deprived in your life, how you allowed yourself to bring those things in yeah it's such a good question I think personality um I think you're born with your personality Mm. I've always been absolutely fascinated with the nature versus nurture and I'm a really good um test case for nature being really critical nurture plays a huge role but I think you do revert to type and I think as a person being born I think I was a real combination of both of my parents in terms of their personalities. I think I was actually always going to be someone that was vivacious, um, that liked fun, that was hedonistic, um, impulsive. Um, I certainly lived that one out. Um, (laughs) And I think probably when I found this kind of sense of freedom and being able to live with my friends and do what normal 20-something-year-olds would do, which is party, have fun. I found, maybe like my mum did when she went to university, just this sense of freedom and joy and just enjoy the moment. It was such a relief to be free. I overdid it 
all the time. <laughs> like what I ways did, did you overdo oh, it? Oh, you know, I drank too much. Yeah. I partied too hard. I, you know, dated a lot of boys. <laughs> In the, that time, it, you know, did you did you reward yourself with luxuries and, and what do those look like? Well, look, I've always loved a bit of luxury. Mm-hmm. I definitely, you know, I would spend a fortune on a dress. Yeah. Um, I'd have to have this dress and so I'd spend $1,000 on a dress when I really didn't have it. I was definitely into my cars. I've always had convertibles. I really like my first convertible car was a little convertible Golf and I just remember thinking... I have finally made it. And I'd drive down the hill when we were living at Bondi and, you know, we lived right on the water and I'd drive into my garage with my convertible and it was just – it was heaven. It was so super fun. The, the the noticeable car just like your mum. Yes, Have yes. you made that connection no. before? <laughs> no, you just made it. <laughs> you know, I, I appreciate that there would be an enormous sense of pride in the things that you have – been able to afford yourself, um, whether it be your convertible or mm. your beautiful clothing, that you must wear them with a sense of pride of a symbol of all you've achieved um, and how you can hold yourself. Do you, do you agree with that? No, or no, not at all. Not at all. I'd, I'd, I'd love that to be the way yeah. but it's really funny. I think I... Fear runs really deep and it's a big part of how I've always been and a huge part of even writing the book was I can't live with fear Mm. forever. It's so debilitating and people don't think that I'm fearful. They think I'm fearless actually because a lot of what I do is fearless. I am very confident in dealing with other people's situations and looking after other people and making business decisions. But when it comes to me, I don't ever feel really proud of, you know, the properties I have or, or, or what I own because I just feel so scared that I might lose it all. And all I've ever done is things that mattered to me, lose them. Mm. You know, my mm. brother is the case in point. Like he was the most important person to me in the world, more important to me than my parents because I never knew them. I was a baby. But my brother took on that role of being my mum and being my dad and he was exceptional at it. He just – he took on the responsibility of of all of us and he he was like a dad to me and he just was – he was so my world, my earth, my stars, everything. So that when he was gone – it's, you know, my brother, and I talk about this in the book, I think my brother said his world ended. Actually, he had a physical explosion in his head. He could feel something melting in his brain and he said, I was just never the same again. And I had exactly the same reaction but I was, you know, a 13-year-old girl. And so I've never really been able to become attached to anything, either physical, material... And in many ways, emotions and emotional connections because the fear of that loss is so real and it's been so repeated. And so I don't really physically connect to anything. Right. So, no, I, I don't feel a sense of pride in how I look. I know that that's what I need to do and you I do deserve it. deserve to. And I probably <laughs> deserve it. I don't know. Um, I pay for it all myself. I know that. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, it's a really – you know, again, I have weird relationships with things as a result. Mm. Um, 
you're in a strong, powerful position, and there's one point in which your brother in your in your book, Greg, turns around to um, to you and says, "Look at you! You are a force to be reckoned with." I can't even say it without my voice breaking. How does that feel for you? To understand that you have so much strength and so much power, and you emulate that to other people. I I feel really honoured. Um, to hear you say that and for my brother to even ever give me a compliment is a big deal. <laughs> even though I know he feels it, we, you know, we, we don't kind of express stuff that way to each other a lot. So for my brother to, to be proud or to make a comment about, you know, being a force, yeah, it makes me really proud. Um, mm. I, I hope I am. I know that... I know that that's certainly the way superficially I appear. You know, my daughters always make a joke of everyone's scared of you, Mum, <laughs> including us. And I'm like, well, that's good. That's a healthy yeah, fear. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's balanced. Children need to have <laughs> exactly, a little bit of fear of exactly. <laughs> So, look, I feel I, um, I feel really happy to able to be able to have strength. And again, I think deep down, I always had it. Mm. It's just about, you know, really giving it a voice and doing something, something meaningful with it. Yeah. In terms of meaningful relationships, you've got two beautiful girls. How old? Sophia and Jasmine. Yeah. Is that right. Yeah. How old are they now? Are so they? Sophia is sixteen. Sophia May yeah. and Jasmine Iris is fourteen. Right. Yeah. Gorgeous girls, yeah. you know, teenagers and have their own challenges in life. But, no, they are absolutely – I love and adore and cherish them. They are the centre of my world and they're pretty resilient kids um, and they're gorgeous young women. How did they – or how do they or how do you want them to understand your story? Well, Sophia, my eldest, read it. She's read the book, which right. I was really scared about her doing because, you know, there's content in there that you don't necessarily want your teenage daughters to read. Um, well, you want to protect them. I want to protect them, of yeah. course. Um, Jasmine, who's not an avid reader, hasn't <laughs> read it and I don't know if she ever will, but I hope she does one day. Um, wh- what I want them to get from it is the sense that no matter what happens in life, that you can get through it, Mm -hmm. that I've had a really difficult life. They know that. They know my life story really well because I bang on about it Um, and tell them how fortunate they are, (laughs) (laughs) which they hate. Um, But I think I just want them to know that you can always get help, you can always get support, that you're not alone and that when times are tough, just reach out that I'm here for them and even if I wasn't, that there's enough people in their world that can be there for them. Do you find yourself ever indulging them in the things that you were not allowed to indulge in or didn't have the opportunity to or Um, are you... Are you still quite firm with their boundaries? I'm pretty firm. I wrote my thesis on parenting. 
Um, <laughs> so when I went back to do my postgrad in psychology, I w- thought, what will I write my thesis in? And then I thought, oh my, and I was pregnant at the time. And mm. I thought, oh my God, I have no idea how to be a parent. Everyone else knows how to be a parent because they had parents. Yeah. I don't have parents. How am I going to learn how to do this? And I thought, I know, I'll research it. And so I wrote my thesis on parenting and the styles of parenting. And so that is how I've set about <laughs> in a clinical way because I didn't have any other way yeah. to kind of be a parent. And they would definitely, I mean, we should ask them what they think, but I'm definitely firm. I'm definitely strong, but I just love and cuddle and adore them and, you know, use the words treasure and my darling all the time. So I actually think I kind of have modelled, I've tried to model (laughs) what I wrote my thesis on. Um, And do I indulge them? Yeah, Of course I do, but I'll never buy them a car. In writing the book, uh, you've obviously had to dig, so to speak, into um, not just your past but your parents' past and connect with people that you would have had lost connections with. Did you find yourself um, being able to put a few missing pieces of the puzzle together through that process? Yeah, yeah. Was that a really cathartic thing for yeah. you? I mean, not as many pieces of the puzzle as you would imagine. It's it's actually been really hard mm. to find people from my past. People came out of the woodwork. I mean, at my book launch last year, um, a priest, bizarrely... Um, wrote to the Channel 7 newsroom. I'm trying to get in contact with Katie because I was actually the priest that comforted her father after her mother died and actually I conducted his funeral when he died and I did the eulogy and I'd love to get in touch with her if she's willing to talk to me because I have some stuff to share with her. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so bizarre. Mm. So I met with him Mm. And he wrote and, – and he told me just these extraordinary stories of despair that my dad was going through and he did. He said he was visiting my dad regularly while just after my mum had died because they were just this desperately in love couple and his heart was broken and that's what he described to me. Your father was so in love with your mother that even though he was dying, he was just so consumed by her loss – And also just the terror of what was to befall him. And he said, your family always remained in my memory because I thought you were going to be fine going off to this family. But if I had known what was going to befall you, and I I, I never stopped thinking about you four young orphans. Mm. Was the book another way to kind of uh, release yourself from some of the the past? Look, I don't know. It's a really – it's such an interesting question about what it's done – um, I had six months of um, really intense psychotherapy while I was writing the book because it was re-traumatising. Mm. So to have to dig down and find those moments of what had happened and, you know, how I built my white brick house around myself as a child to protect myself from the abuse, that was, um, you know, that was actually dangerous. It was dangerous to go deeply into the trauma that I had spent years blocking out. What it has done for me was 
more about – I could only do it because I felt I was doing it for my parents. If it was about doing it for myself, I just wouldn't be able to do it because that's so self-indulgent in my mind, <laughs> in right? In your mind, yes. So I had to do it as part of – I'd always been trying to seek this justice for my parents and nothing could bring them back but I needed to feel like I'd done the right thing by them and fighting the government for so long and doing all of that stuff and just feeling like such a failure because I didn't get any good outcomes there – I thought I have to write have. this story. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I have since. And I think part of writing the story is that I feel like I've really honoured them. Mm. They just failed to exist after they died and no one ever mentioned them again. No one – I don't even know what their friends thought. I've never spoken to their friends. Like I, they were just gone. They were like they never mattered, they never lived, they never existed. And for me writing the book, it was like, you know what? They were two really driven people that cared about their community and and their family and, you know, they'd had a tough run but they mattered. They were people that mattered. And so writing the story was about saying there's a record forever that they existed and that they mattered to us even if they mattered to no one else. In terms of usually when I finish my interviews, Katie, I ask, you know, what, what would you like to be wearing in your, your kind of 70s and 80s as you're coming to kind of towards um, the kind of resigning years of your life? What, instead, I, I just want to ask you, what, what's the legacy you want to you wanna leave on your own terms? The best legacy I could leave would be to have two really happy, healthy, beautiful individuals as my daughters who grow and feel like they have a better chance at life than I did because no matter the challenges they've had, um, they believe in themselves and that they know that they're special and have a lot to offer. Um, I will be so honoured if I live long enough um, because another one of the challenges is I never thought I would live, you know, beyond 40 because my parents didn't and I always thought I would just die. So I'm surprised that I'm still sitting here today. Um, But I would love to be 70 odd and still, you know, able to wear beautiful clothes (laughs) but also able to you know, cherish the fact that I did break a cycle, um, that there was no abuse and that my children are able to have grandchildren and able to just take for granted the things that I didn't, like being safe, being genuinely just happy, being balanced, knowing that you have challenges in life but just not that they're so burdensome as the ones that I've had to overcome Mm. Um, and being good, kind, caring people. If I leave that as a legacy, I'll I'll be hugely proud. (laughs) I I think you already have. (laughs) (laughs) Katie, thank you so much for sharing um, your, your very big story with me. From a young age, Katie learned to make everything on the surface look fine. Yet against her high-achieving, good-looking facade was a fractured sense of self she's been on a resilient journey to reclaim. Katie may have lacked a nurturing childhood home, but as she would say, she is a great test case for nature's influence on who you are. So despite the trauma and the grief Katie's early life endured, this is not what defines her. 
and instead this strong woman depicts a speckled portrait of her fun-loving, trailblazing mother Iris. While Katie has only had fragments of her mother to cling to, the connection is clear. Whether it be a serious intellect, a love for fashion, a penchant for fast, flashy cars, or just strength, determination and empathy, Katie's story is testament to the power of legacy. And it's Katie's fearless style to tell this story with the strength, grace and warm-hearted spirit that now defines her. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed hearing this style story, please feel free to subscribe to the podcast and give it a rating to help other like-minded listeners find these stylish stories.